Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined by my recovering partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert Osgood Professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Elliot, welcome back, and please introduce our very special guest for today. Well, uh, thank you, Eric. So our guest today is Andrew Roberts, who is, from an academic's point of view, a depressingly prolific writer of big books that actually people want to read. And of course, there's nothing you could do, Andrew, that would more offend uh, most professors. Let me just mention a few of the books. There's, of course, his monumental biography, one-volume biography of Churchill. As somebody who's who's, uh, done a bit of work on Churchill myself, it, it is far and away the best biography of Churchill that's out there. There's a collective biography, Masters and Commanders, about uh, leadership in World War II. There's a biography of Lord Halifax, The Holy Fox, biography of Salisbury, of Napoleon. I could go on and on, but I would get downcast if I did that. We're here, though, to talk about his most recent book, which I'm enjoying immensely, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. And, and I think just to put you at your ease, Andrew, I should say that I, I can't speak for Eric, but I know for myself, by temperament, I would have been a loyalist. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, so, you know, you, you should not expect excessive bashing of dear old King George from me. Eric, I don't know. Where, where are you on that? You know, as a foreign service officer, I had to take uh, the Myers-Briggs personality profile several times. And at one point in my career, someone looked at my profile and said, you have the profile of a juvenile delinquent, which <laughs> probably suggests that I, I would have been with, with George Washington and, and his hearty band of, of revolutionaries. But, but Elliot, look, I've long ago forgiven you your passion for defending Benedict Arnold, so not, not to worry. Well, don't get me started on Benedict Arnold, the true hero of the American Revolution. Uh, but we're not here to talk about us. We're here to talk uh, with you, Andrew, about this terrific book. I, you know, I think to give people a sense of what's in it, and then we'd like to draw you out on it. It is a, I think it's fair to say, a, a fair but quite sympathetic biography of George III, uh, who is indeed misunderstood, who you portray very convincingly, not only simply as, a, as decent a human being as a king can be, but as somebody who didn't want what he got and was certainly very far away from being uh, the kind of monster that he certainly was portrayed in the United States, at least during the revolution and uh, thereafter. Am I getting it right? I think so, but it is perfectly understandable, of course, uh, to misrepresent your enemy. You know, it's almost, uh, you take that for granted in war, that uh, that you're going to be putting out propaganda which, uh, which blackens the name of your enemy. I think that uh, is just part of warfare. What's so strange is that for 200 years since then, uh, when our countries have both been um, uh, friends, the historians, especially the Whig historians, have continued to bash out uh, poor old George III and uh, and treat him as though all of those things that were said in the Declaration of Independence, for example, were literally true. 
Yeah. Well, kind of like the way people have treated Benedict Arnold, but I digress. <laughs> well, needless to <laughs> say, I agree with you on the Benedict Arnold side, but but nonetheless, I, we, I don't want to put off all of our uh, of our listeners today. <laughs> well, you know, th- there's a, uh, I think there's an interesting larger point here. Uh, Andrew, one of the things I really admire enormously about your work is you give us different viewpoints on people who we thought we knew. That goes back to Halifax, who I think frequently gets tarred as something of an appeaser when he was something rather different than that. Your admiration of Churchill, which is, again, I think fair and critical where it should be critical, which is actually swimming a bit against the tide. So I wonder if we could draw you out a bit. You know, you talk about the Whig historians. That's W-H-I-G. Well, who are they and why are they still that way today? And is there a broader observation maybe you'd like to make about the nature of history writing right now? Yes. I th- well, the Whig historians, to start off, were, um, and thank you very much for all the kind things you said earlier, and it's a great honour to be on the show. Um, the Whig historians were very often actually related to the Whig politicians, who were the people who uh, started the glorious revolution of 1689 and who uh, George III opposed politically for many of the years, most of the years of his long reign. He was the longest reigning king of England, nearly 60 years. And um, and so the historians, who, as I say, were, were related to them by uh, blood and marriage very often, and uh, had the same political opinions, which were the liberal, radical and wit- liberal opinions of the day, um, continued to be very much in the mainstream of uh, history, not just in the 18th century, but also throughout the 19th century and indeed into the 20th century. And so uh, so George III gets a, uh, gets a pretty heavy rap from, uh, from the British Whig historians and, of course, m- much more understandably, also from American historians. So, uh, so overall, uh, whether or not there's a broader thing to assume um, from that, uh, that uh, the history is uh, tends to be written, of course, by the victors. Um, I think is is so obvious as to be banal. Yeah, but don't you think, in some ways, I mean, Churchill, uh, obviously, very different character, also has taken something of battering from a lot of uh, the people who write history now. I mean, obviously, through the sixties, I think you could say, or at least some part of the 60s, you know, he, he simply was this iconic figure who you did not criticize. And, and that has really changed. I mean, I've really been quite struck by that. Do you see something there that's worth exploring? I think I think so. Well, I mean, it went too far in the 1960s, frankly. I mean, there were lots of things one can criticise Winston Churchill for. There were lots of things he got wrong, lots of blunders he made. Um, you know, I, I could list six or seven for you right away. But uh, but the fact was that on the big issues, the great issues, the uh, the ones that really mattered in the 20th century, seeing the rise of Hitler, the way in which uh, he uh, helped create the grand strategy that ultimately defeated Hitler, being one of the first people to see the threat posed by Soviet uh, communism, uh, he was right. And so my problem really with the revisionist uh, Churchill historians, of whom, as you say, there are many, many um, of them and there are many more to come. Unfortunately, there's another terrible book that's about to be published next month about Churchill, in fact. Um, the uh, the fact is that you have to do two things. First of all, of course, you have to stay rigidly within the evidence, which a lot of these uh, revisionist historians simply don't. And the other thing 
is of course you have to try and see him through the lens of his own time. And to place uh, 21st century uh, mores on a 20th century figure is profoundly ahistorical and really doesn't help you understand that figure in the slightest. Andrew, I want to, I, I certainly would love to stay on Churchill and I will come back to him, but I want to, just before we depart Good King George, you do a lovely job of depicting in all of your books, actually, the human side of the figures who we're talking about, which I think we sometimes lose sight of uh, in history. I mean, these people were human beings uh, with the same strengths, weaknesses, passions, peculiarities that all of us you know, have. Um, and in particular, I think you do a lovely job of contrasting him with his grandfather, who really does seem like a rather horrid, horrid figure, uh, George II. But you also are not immune to criticizing some of his failures in statecraft, uh, in, in particular parts of how he handled uh, the revolutionary crisis, uh, his inflexibility. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how do you see him as a war leader and what, what were, why did the character, uh, which you, you know, describe so positively, not, you know, come through in the policy uh, realm? Partly it was because he was not the primary maker of policy. He was a constitutional monarch. He was a limited monarch. Ever since the Glorious Revolution, uh, kings didn't make policy. That was done by the politicians and the statesmen, of whom he was very unfortunate that really of the 14 prime ministers that he appointed in his long reign, only two of them were any good, um, were, were remarkable, should I say. Uh, and William Pitt, the elder um, was too ill, frankly, uh, to be prime minister and, and wasn't an effective prime minister at the very early stage of the American Revolution. And William Pitt the Younger was uh, was not on the scene at all during the American Revolution or the War of Independence. So you have this, uh, this problem that he had tremendously second-rate statesmen like Lord North, Lord George Germain and others who he was working through. Um, and also, of course, the generals, once the war had broken out, were, were not of the finest quality. Up against him and, uh, and the British side, you had uh, a polymath of the state, uh, status of uh, Benjamin Franklin, a charismatic leader of men like George Washington, a uh, financial genius like Alexander Hamilton. You had uh, Madison and Monroe and a wordsmith like uh, Thomas Jefferson, a politician of John Adams's uh, st status. You know, for an Englishman, I have to say it's completely infuriating that in the 1770s, America managed to bring together all of these geniuses and giants, whilst we had Lord Cornwallis, uh, Sir William Howe and Lord North. <laughs> you know, I, I once was visiting the uh, Carlton Club, the home of the Conservatives in London. And I was staggered to see a large portrait of Lord North front and center. And, I, you know, they're just struck me. Is, is this, it's ridiculous. It's is this really club. the guy. <laughs> and he was, a weak, he was a weak politician. He'd have only ever called himself a weak politician. We shouldn't have him in that club. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I found it very bizarre. Could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, I think... Uh, the, the, the American caricature of him is, you know, to some extent, this somewhat severe, tyrannical picture. I mean, you, you quote from uh, the musical Hamilton, uh, which I think you know, plays to that uh, stereotype, unfortunately. But I think the other thing that people, first, we don't know anything about his career at, or his reign after the American Revolution. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. And then, of course, the question of his illness. And I, uh, one of the things, many things I learned from the book is that I had always assumed that he had porphyria. And what you're suggesting is 
know that he was probably had bipolar disorder. Yes, he did not. He did not suffer from porphyria, um, as the show um, "The Madness of King George," for example, uh, makes out. It was um, it was bipolar disorder, affective type one, and and all of the um, medical opinion. It's not just me who says that now. It, we, it's accepted that uh, that that was the case um, because the people who originally came up with the porphyria. Um, thesis essentially misled doctors um, with the symptoms that they gave doctors in the 1960s, uh, which was a, um, a, a very uh, unethical, frankly, thing to have done. It's all in the appendix of my uh, of my book. With regard to his, um, and, and one of the interesting things is that even whatever mental illness he suffered from, it wouldn't have made any effect or difference to the American Revolution because his major outbreak wasn't until 17... 88, which was five years after America became independent. So, so that too is a great sort of misunderstanding. The idea that because he was mad, he lost the colonies is completely wrong. Um, with regard to his uh, uh, career after 1783, there is um, an enormous amount to say. And uh, uh, I somehow managed, I think, to squeeze it into about five chapters because, uh, as you say, it's not the it's not the most an important part of his life, but nonetheless, he was the king throughout the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, and he was he learned many of the question the lessons of the American War of Independence, and uh, he put them to good use in Napoleonic Wars, which eventually were fought to a victorious outcome. Um, although by that stage, by the time of the Battle of Waterloo, he was he was completely insane. He was also uh, blind and deaf and. Uh, and sufferings from senile dementia. So it's a very, the last chapter is a pretty pathos-laden one. But, um, but nonetheless, his, uh, his post-American life, as it were, was a, uh, was a very um, strong and important and powerful one. I have to say one thing that has always struck me about him is the way in which, despite, I mean, disappointment isn't the word for it, the you know, profound blow that losing the American colonies must have been, he, he dealt with it in a more productive way uh, and perhaps in a more generous way than one might have expected. And, you know, there's the famous compliment he pays to George Washington, uh, but really a a whole bunch of things. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, the reference you're making is to March uh, 1797 when Washington gave up the presidency and he said he was the finest character of the age. But he also uh, said something that was uh, tremendously impressive, I think, to and gracious to John Adams, who was the first American um, ambassador to the Court of St. James in London. And he said um, on meeting him in June 1785, I'll be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I've always said, and I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. I think that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good thing for him to have um, said, really, and and again, gracious. Yeah, I mean, really, quite an extraordinarily um, statesmanlike thing to uh, to have said. To what extent did the loss of the American colonies really damage his standing with British elites and the British public? Much less than you'd imagine, um, because even uh, as early after the um, the Treaty of Paris that ended that war, 
as uh, December 1783, so only a few months after the Treaty of Paris, he was in a political position to uh, to get rid of the Whig government and impose um, William Pitt the Younger, uh, the 24-year-old Prime Minister, a decision that was subsequently vindicated by Pitt the Younger's landslide victory in the uh, subsequent general election. It was the only time that he actually, in his whole reign, whole 60-year reign, actually imposed the Prime Minister who did not have the uh, support of the majority of the House of Commons. Uh, the weak historians make him out to be a sort of evil dictator for having done that, but he did it because the radical Whigs were going to try to nationalise the East India Company for their own benefit. And uh, as I say, it turned out to um, be supported by the people in the general election. Um, but uh, it's a... Um, it's an astonishing thing, really, that within a, only a few months, he was politically strong enough to be able to do that. What explains that? I mean, what explains that he remains a reasonably popular monarch even after the Revol American Revolution? He wasn't blamed um, for the defeat in, in America, primarily. Uh, the Americans, of course, because of that uh, laser-like um, ad hominem attack on him in the... Uh, in the Declaration of Independence, those 28 uh, clauses which blame him entirely for absolutely everything. Uh, he is a major figure, therefore, in the American War of Independence to American minds. But the British people didn't think of that um, at the time. They quite understandably, and in my view, rightly blame the government. And uh, they brought down the uh, government of Lord North in the uh, February of 1782. And, uh, and they actually... Uh, concentrated on the people who were really responsible rather than the, the king, who was essentially signing off things that were agreed by the cabinet and, and the government. Andrew, I wonder if we can broaden our discussion, you know, to really your previous book, um, which talks about war and leadership. And you, I mean, this has been a leitmotif, really, of your work going back to, as Elliot mentioned, your biography of Lord Halifax, but also you've written books about leaders who uh, were opposed to one another, Napoleon and Wellington, Churchill and Hitler. You've written the biography of, of Churchill, written a magnificent biography of Napoleon. What are the major, for you, sort of elements of statecraft and war? You've also just launched, I, I might add, a, a new podcast on the secrets of statecraft uh, that uh, the Hoover Institution is sponsoring. So what what lessons... Uh, from all of this study of history, have you, you know, taken out of out of this about what we need in a leader in wartime? I think the um, in that book, in the in the uh, leadership in war book, um, there's a an essay on Napoleon, and in the course of it, I think there are twenty aspects of Napoleon Napoleonic leadership that. Um, I that I write about, and if a leader can uh, can have a large number of them, then uh, then I think you've you've pretty much cracked it. But having said that, of course, Napoleon did lose, so it's not necessarily um, you need things on top of uh, of the um, of the list of, of, of these twenty things. I'd say amongst them are a, a sense of timing, a good deal of luck. Is, uh, is quite useful, a powerful oratory, um, the capacity to tell people bad news. Politicians don't like to do that in general, but um, if you have, if you're trusted enough by the people to tell them bad news, then they, uh, then that's always a, 
a good thing. Um, propaganda ca uh, techniques, that's, a, um, that's pretty much a prerequisite for a successful war leader. Um, a, a sort of uh, honesty with the, uh, with the public and an ability to, to talk straight to the public, uh, to move their hearts, as, um, as uh, um, Napoleon said, to electrify the soul. You know, these are things that, um, that a lot of people do not have, but, uh, but which great war leaders uh, tend to be able to have. There, is, um, there are lots of others, the capacity to delegate successfully, obviously, um, to people who you have chosen and, and trust and, and admire. Um, but you have to be quite a butcher to be able to, um, uh, to ruthlessly sack people who are underperforming. Is a, is a pretty essential, um, yeah, even if they're friends of yours, even if they're close to you politically and so on, you've got to get rid of them if they're not performing. It's a, uh, it's a long list, as I say, there are 18 or 20 of them. And, uh, and of course, not every leader has all of them. And um, although Napoleon did, um, and the, uh, as I say, the recipe for success is not, that's not total owing to the fact that Napoleon himself was defeated. One of the things that's very impressive about your work is, you know, the way most academics do it is we write the same book over and over again, three <laughs> or four times. And if you've done it twice, you get tenure. And after you've done it three times, then you get to be a full professor. And you don't do that. Well, I'm not an academic. That's the thing. I, I, I'm, I'm a visiting professor at places, but nobody pays my pension uh, apart from my readers. <laughs> that, that makes it scarier. So here, here's the thing. I'm, I'm very curious. You know, you really have been willing to tackle very different periods, Churchill, Napoleon, George III. How, when you're you know, about to leap into a new field um, and a new individual, how do you go about it? I'm, I'm just uh, curious about the workmanship of it. I sort of try to do the opposite of, of what a tenured academic uh, might do, owing to the fact that it strikes me that certainly over the last 40 years or so since I was at university, the areas, the subject areas that, uh, that tenured ac academics are interested in getting involved in have become smaller and smaller. They, they tend to like to specialise in smaller and smaller um, uh, subject areas. And as a result, it has allowed non-tenured people, you know, freelance historians like me, to uh, to occupy a much bigger space, which happens also to be the space that the public are interested in reading books about. So what I won't do is if, uh, as in the case of Winston Churchill, there are 1,009 biographies of Winston Churchill that have been written, I won't let that put me off. Whereas, um, and that might be hubristic and, and, and absurd in a way, but you shouldn't just not write a book because an awful lot of other people have already written one. Uh, ditto, of course, Napoleon. But if there is an area where um, somebody hasn't written a good book for 50 years, which is the case of uh, George III, as a, in terms of a cradle-to-the-grave life of George III, um, then, then that's an added attraction, of course, as well. And I'm presently... Um, about to uh, submit a book proposal for a life of Disraeli. And, um, and no one's written a really good biography of Disraeli, Cradle to the Grave, um, for 60 years. And uh, so that's also a, a rather, if there's a gap in the market like that, then it's, um, it's attractive to, to try and fill it. 
And how do you, let's say, okay, with a book like a, a, a biography of Disraeli, do you go out and say, I'm going to read all the other biographies of Disraeli and figure out what are the questions that they're not tackling? Do you go straight for the documents? How, how do you, what are the mechanics? You sit, you, 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 you buy the 12 volumes, 10 volumes, actually, in his case, of his uh, letters, and you sit down and read them. Um, you're getting straight into the mind of the, of the man. Um, you do not worry about what um, people wrote in the 19th century and the biographies of the, of the those three-volume uh, biographies that were in Disraeli's case, six-volumes biographies that the Victorians wrote. You um, you get down and uh, and start with the uh, with the actual you know hard evidence. At least that's what I do. Every historian's got their own way of of going about it. Some historians actually start writing as soon as they as they're writing the book as soon as they get the evidence i can't do that because i'm always terrified that right at the end of collecting my evidence i'm going to um uh discover something new which will have um uh, thereby forced me to rip up everything that i'd written up until then uh, so uh, so there it is i must say i was particularly curious to hear that because after i finished my current book I want to do one on Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, and I've been thinking about how to tackle it, so I'll I'll take that as advice. Well, you know, you no, but Elliot, I'm very interested because, of course, when I go lecturing at the New York Historical Society, which I did just the other day, and walked past the now non-existent statue of yes. Roosevelt, <laughs> you're going to have to face, in many ways, the same kind of um, of sort of politically correct woke um, issues with regard to Roosevelt that I've had to do with. Um, with Winston Churchill, right. and it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how you tackle them because they are very uh, contentious. Certainly in my country, and I know in yours as well, they are very contentious, and um, and can be you know pretty um, uh, hard fought. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to making uh, more enemies. Um, but that actually raises <laughs> a that raises a, another uh, question. Then I'll throw it back to Eric. I mean, one of the things you, you have flourished as a conservative intellectual, even though the literary culture of the UK is, I mean, it may be more balanced than it is here. I mean, you've got The Spectator and so on. But on the whole, I mean, you you do get quite good reviews from elements of the press that I might not have expected. Um, that's partly, obviously, a commentary on your work. Is it also a commentary on uh, British literary culture, do you think? I think I think people do try and leave their political um, assumptions at the door when they're writing book reviews. They obviously don't when they're writing articles. Um, that would be uh, that would be insane. But um, but no, I think the reason that I get uh, perfectly reasonable and and fair reviews from left wing papers is that um, there is a there is a tradition of not imposing one's politics on uh, on book reviewing. Don't underestimate, Andrew, the fact that you write beautifully, which uh, is all too rare <laughs> a you know attribute among you know contemporary historians. So you you can write incredibly long books that people actually want to read, which is you know a, a tribute to to you. I, I wanted to uh, for, for a moment tie tie some of this conversation to our you know immediate concerns and in particular i mean i'm not sure if you saw it or if you did elliot but i watched uh, happens to be we're recording this today when uh, volodymyr zelensky addressed the yeah. united states congress in in what was i thought an immensely moving 
uh, very well executed speech. And uh, in in that sense, uh, when he spoke to the House of Commons not too long ago, he clearly was echoing Churchill in his rhetoric. Today, he you know echoed in in some ways Martin Luther King, uh, but was also very Churchillian in in his rhetoric. And and people have compared uh, you know Zelensky to to Churchill. And I, as someone who's sitting in Central Europe now, observing this kind of war at close hand, but also uh, uh, someone who's written more than one book about Winston Churchill, how, how what do you make of that comparison? How do you, how do you think about it? I think it's a, a valid one. I do think that um, uh, President Zelensky is showing Churchillian um, leadership. I think we mentioned earlier about uh, about all the various aspects of uh, leadership. I think that President Zelensky is showing an awful lot of those that list that I uh, that I gave you. He certainly has been speaking to his people in a way that doesn't underestimate the perils that uh, that they're facing. Um, he is, as you say, paraphrasing Churchill. Uh, he said, "We shall fight on the uh, in the forests. We shall fight in the streets, and so on. We shall never surrender." It's a classic and straightforward paraphrase um, of uh, of Churchill, and uh, and I think it's a, a valid analogy when one thinks that uh, Churchill, of course, faced hundreds of days of uh, bombing of his capital city, indeed, and he stayed there and stuck it out. Uh, that's what um, that's what Zelensky's doing. He's not doing what the Afghan president did, which was to skip out of the country as quickly as soon as he could. He's staying in his capital and he's fighting, if possible, you know, possibly, possibly to the death. And that's what Winston Churchill said he would do too. And I think that focuses the attention, of course, of the world, and also focuses the emotions of the world, because uh, so somebody who's got the sheer guts to do that is obviously a leader to follow. And uh, and I think that the way that, uh, that Zelensky is essentially channeling his inner Churchill is, a, um, is both a tribute to him and also, in a sense, a posthumous tribute to Churchill himself. I've been tempted to make a comparison uh, to Ronald Reagan as well, because obviously both of them came out of a background uh, as actors. Reagan had the enormous advantage of actually having been a governor of the largest state in in the Union in the United States in the in the 1970s before he became president which obviously gave him enormous political experience that Zelensky didn't have. I mean Zelensky went from being an actor, a comedian and an actor who played a comedian who became president of Ukraine to actually becoming president of of Ukraine and you know his lack of political uh, experience in the first couple of years of his presidency clearly was on on display he he was elected with something like 73% of the vote but you know his popularity went down as in, inevitably does for politicians when they actually have to govern but in this moment he has in you know incredibly risen to to this moment in part because he understands that part of leadership is performance art and uh, the performative piece of this you know he's been really well well suited to do i don't mean to suggest that there's anything fake about what he's doing i think it's all very very genuine but he understands that there's a role to be played here and he is fulfilling that role am i m- missing something or is that a fair comparison no and actually i give i i think that's a very fair comparison i go further slightly i mean um you'll re- recall how ronald reagan um especially on the on the left and amongst comedians and the rest of it um they sneered at him frankly, because he was an actor. And it was a, uh, 
uh, it was something that um, before he became president was held against him, that he, he couldn't be a serious and substantial figure for the very simple reason that he was himself an actor. And, um, and that was proved, um, of course, very quickly to be rubbish. And, uh, and Zelensky also, the Russians attempted to, uh, to sneer at him because he had been a comedian in his uh, previous life. And boy, is he making them smile on the other side of their faces now, you know. Uh, and I think another connection that uh, Zelensky has with Ronald Reagan is that he's able somehow in these um, daily, um, daily press conferences that he gives, which are directed to the world, but they're also directed to his own people. He manages to um, to essentially summon up the essence of freedom, of what freedom is all about, of why it's worth fighting for, why it's worth, in all too many cases in Ukraine, dying for. I was in Ukraine um, this time last week, and speaking to Ukrainians, even ones who uh, who didn't vote for him, as you mentioned, uh, you know he wasn't terribly popular in the first two. Uh, uh, two years of his um, presidency, and these were people who who came from ethnic um, backgrounds that uh, where he's not terribly popular. And both of them have said that since the invasion, he has united the country in a way that no other uh, politician could, and uh, that they are they are inspired by him uh, so much that um, their their previous opposition to him is, um, as far as they're concerned, can completely um, uh, forgotten. It strikes me that um, in, in a way what we see in Zelensky is something that you're, it's a point that you tacitly make by the, the subjects you've taken for your books, which is individuals matter enormously. I mean, if uh, Zelensky had been killed, let's say, at the very outset of this war, as I believe the Russians probably intended to do, who knows whether the, you know, things would be where they are now. I mean, I I am sure there would be plenty of Ukrainians fighting uh, desperately, but but it wouldn't be the same thing at all. I don't. I That's don't right. Um, the moral is is to the physical, as Napoleon said, as three years to one. Um, that's the importance right. of morale is absolutely central, and I agree. If he had been if he'd been killed in the opening uh, opening scenes of this conflict, equally the great man and women view of history has been, uh, I think, also underlined by President Putin and his uh, behaviour, because we couldn't, can we really, imagine anybody else, um, any other Russian leader invading Ukraine? I mean, it does require somebody of a particular uh, sort of form of mind that, uh, other than President Putin, isn't terribly... um, present in the in the Russian political scene at the moment that I can see. So so it, it does underline the the correctness, I think, of Thomas Carlyle's view that the individual does matter in history, which is a slap in the face for the determinists and the Marxists and all of those other people who think that there's some kind of vast impersonal force that um, takes over history and there's nothing to do with individuals. So what that makes me wonder about is, you know, you've, you have written about individuals who were there and made a huge uh, difference at these really major, major watersheds in history or turning points. You know, does your intuition as an historian tell you that this particular conflict right now is one of those, or is it just, is it one in a, a series of events that basically all pretty much pointed in the same direction? 
I, I think it's a tremendously important event. I really do believe that the 24th of February 2022 um, is going to go down in history as an absolutely central um, and key moment in the post-1945 um, history. We, we, we're seeing the time, basically, that, uh, that the Russians, or at least the Russian leader, essentially wants to, to start another Cold War. Uh, and is willing to, and uh, you could find by um, by this time next month that there is a uh, there's a partitioned Ukraine along the Dnieper, or in some such way that there's a Western Ukraine that uh, doesn't have access to the sea. That's uh, capital city is in Lviv, um, and uh, and therefore you know Russia has actually been willing to undergo all of the economic pain and and to become a pariah nation in order to set up what's essentially going to be another Iron Curtain. And I think that really uh, will be a key moment. It's going to be up there with the um, the moment that you two guys work for so hard, the pulling down of the Berlin Wall. Uh, it'll be up there with 9-11 with, uh, with the Berlin airlift, in my view. Andrew, I want to pick up on, you know, sort of your comments about Putin. I mean, it's impossible to imagine this, of course, without Putin, as you say. And this is, I think, a startling event. I think a lot of people, including me, doubted that he would ultimately do something on such a large scale. Um, I was wrong. Um, his appetite for risk has clearly uh, grown over the years, which I would say probably has something to do about with the rewards he's gotten for risks he's taken on a smaller scale earlier. And all of that, um, along with the fact that, you know, this is a premeditated, unprovoked, highly scripted war of aggression, um, has, you know, turned me back to one of your favorite subjects, which is, you know, the interwar period. And and I've been rereading The Gathering Storm. And I stumbled on, in, in the introductory chapter, a, a, a couple of sentences, which I want to read to you and ask you to comment on in terms of how we in the West have responded to this. That is to say, how President Biden, the United States, uh, our NATO allies ha have responded, because it, it seems to me incredibly apposite. And, and what he says is, as he's recounting that the story he's going to tell uh, will uh, provide some lessons. And he says, we shall see how the counsels of prudence and restraint may become the prime agents of mortal danger. How the middle course adopted from desires for safety and a quiet life may be found to lead direct to the bullseye of disaster. And we'll see how absolute is the need of a broad path of international action pursued by many states in common across the years, irrespective of the ebb and flow of national politics. I mean, do you agree with me that this seems like a very apt description of what we have seen in terms of the West's interactions with Putin over the last 10, 15 years? Once again, Winston Churchill just gets it right, doesn't he? I mean, that's a classic example. Uh, which chapter is it? Is that in? Is that at the beginning of um, Gathering Storm? It's in chapter one, The Folly of the Victors. Right, yeah, yeah. He said it all, hasn't he? I mean, essentially what he's telling us uh, from, from beyond the grave is that if we had been tougher uh, when Putin uh, destabilised um, Georgia in 2008 and um, took the Crimea in 2014 and started the uh, breakaway republics 
in the same year, if perhaps we've been tougher over Chechnya or earlier on in his uh, in his bloodstained career. When one thinks of Putin uh, and all the things that he's done over the years, um, and then all of the presidents of both sides of the um, of the aisle in the United States, uh, one uh, after another, who have um, uh, essentially tried their best to deal with him as a normal human being. Um, whereas we now discover he was anything but a normal human being. I remember, I, I, just like you, I didn't think he'd go into Ukraine. I got it completely wrong as well, because Ukraine is a country of 44 million people. I mean, that is so many more than, uh, than 1956 in Hungary, where there were 9 million people, or, uh, or Czechoslovakia in 1968, there were 13 million Afghans in 1979. You know, these are, these are um, large numbers of people, but nothing like 44 million people who are absolutely, totally uh, up in arms against him. And so, so as an uh, adventure, it was a, a ruthless one, of course, but also a reckless one to an extraordinary degree that um, people like you and me, Elliot, who uh, try to take history as a precedent, um, just simply could not have foreseen. I mean, thank goodness there have been surprises in the other direction. I mean, I, I, I confess I was I thought there was a very serious chance that he would go for the whole thing. But what I didn't expect was the unanimity of the Europeans in response, and in particular, it's quite extraordinary pivot by the Germans. Now, who knows if it'll last and, and so forth. But and that's also part of what I think history teaches us, isn't it? That we, we're going to be continually surprised. And yeah. we usually think about the surprises that we don't like. But then there are also the surprises that we do like. We're including you know, courage in very unlikely places, including a, you know, comic actor from the Ukraine. Yes, that's right. And, and yeah, and every action has its reaction. Um, and, uh, and you're right, I never for a million years, I mean, imagine this time last month, being told that uh, Germany was going to make up a shortfall of 100 billion in its defence spending that was going to bring up from 1.5 to 2% of GDP its uh, its defence spending, uh, was going to send lethal weapons into uh, into Ukraine. You'd think Germany, of all countries, it's been a neo-pacifist power for three quarters of a century. I mean, anyone who told you that would be, you'd, you'd think was insane. And it's all happened in the course of a month. Andrew, you know, one thing you've written about um, in Masters and Commanders uh, really well is alliance management. I mean, and, you know, you do a marvelous job of depicting the very serious disagreements uh, between the U.S. and the British military leadership during World War II about the direction of strategy. I mean, sometimes when you read the records, you wonder how how we won the war. We seem to be fighting with each other almost as hard as we were fighting against the Germans. Um, and so, uh, and you attribute it really to the masterful personalities uh, who were involved, Churchill, Roosevelt, uh, Dill, and Marshall. How do you think the alliance management piece of this has been handled? I mean, Elliot talked about the unanimity of the West. I mean, that didn't just happen, you know, of itself. I mean, obviously there was some diplomacy involved. How would you grade that out? 
Yes, I, uh, thank you for uh, that comment on Masters and Commanders. And of course, Lord Alan Brooke as well was another important figure in, uh, in those Masters and Commanders. And, uh, and I should have mentioned alliance management in that list of, of war leadership um, uh, attributes that, uh, that you need. Um, I think that, the, that this whole um, crisis has underlined yet again the importance of having a special relationship between Britain and America. Um, Britain, I'm proud to say, was uh, the first country to start training uh, Ukrainian troops um, for precisely such an uh, event as this. We were sending lethal aid uh, long before the French or the Germans or, or any of the other European countries. We have been in the forefront of calling for uh, for tough sanctions and so on. So I think that um, the British example in uh, in this is something that I'm proud of. And the great thing is that um, there are in America, especially in your military, people who have been training with uh, with uh, Brits <laughs> all their all their careers. They 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 know them. They're in many cases amongst the uh, the um, high commands of both countries, personal friends. And there's something there that uh, we've seen, of course, in many conflicts in the past, including some that you two guys have been uh, closely involved in, where Anglo-American cooperation has been um, of the first order. And I think that, um, that some stumbling that I'm afraid has been noticeable with your with your president, with President Biden, has been uh, it's it's been lucky that that he has had allies who um, can keep his his sort of um, nose to the grindstone. Elliot, I'm going to give you the last word. You know, the only last word I have is uh, Andrew. Really, to thank you for books which I've not only enjoyed but learned from, which which I think you know n- none of us believe that history has lessons uh, very narrowly understood. But but there certainly are much larger kinds of things that we take away. And, you know, I find more of those in your books than any other author I know. And I'm deeply grateful for the books and I'm deeply grateful for your giving us your time. And and Benedict Arnold really was a great guy, Eric. I'm going to persuade you of that. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. I should never have let you have the last word. Uh, Andrew, Andrew Roberts, thank you so much. I associate myself completely with uh, with Elliot's remarks. I've learned enormous amounts from you over the years. I'm deeply in your intellectual debt. And, um, and I don't know whether this is a threat or a promise, but uh, when you're done with Disraeli, we'll have you back, uh, if not before. Thank you. I'm going to take that very much as a promise. You are kind, guys. Thanks very much indeed for having me on your show. And thanks for joining us on Shield of the Republic. This is Eric Edelman. Shield of the Republic is a product of The Bulwark. And if you're enjoying the podcast, as we hope you are, please consider subscribing to The Bulwark and The Bulwark Plus, which will give you access to all the Bulwark content, including the morning shots and triad newsletters, as well as other podcasts that are behind the paywall. And please make sure to leave a review for us at Shield of the Republic and a comment on the podcast platform wherever you get your podcasts.